Let's get into Philippians chapter 2. If you miss any of these sermons in Philippians, you better listen to them because we only got four chapters in this thing and there's a great, uh, great things that God has given us through Paul to um, understanding the example of Christ's life and ministry and what matters to, to the church and righteousness by faith, so many great doctrines. So um, we are taking, I think, nine weeks in total to go through this book. So we're, we're sort of um, not long in it. So it's really important you hang in there with the whole subject. So we got 11 verses in chapter 2. I want to start it with a question. Uh, what, what do you think is the greatest threat to our church? <clears throat> what would you put on your list? Clearly, if something crazy, I mean, I say crazy, but who knows? Um, God forbid any of us ever decide to walk away from truth. You know, like somebody would say, we're going to compromise Jesus alone, you know. Um, I, I don't see that in our, our future, but, but I suppose that would be a threat, like you leave truth. Um, but I'll tell you one that I think that happens a lot in, uh, in the church world, the culture, and that is a big threat, and that is division and disunity when we don't get along. <clears throat> and that's what chapter 2 is dealing with is the potential that we have to uh, not love each other the way we should. This letter, it's short, but it is described as the letter of joy. And I understand that because in the four chapters, there's 103 verses, and there's 15 references in those 103 verses to joy or rejoicing. So if you do the math and you divide it out, you got one mention for every seven verses. So you can understand why people would say, this is Paul's letter of joy, and it's true. And there'd be some who would suggest that somehow this is the only letter that Paul ever wrote that wasn't addressed or, or written to address some problems in the church, that this is, just, this is just joy, and this is just Paul feeling love for the people, and I think all that's true except for the fact I think there's an issue, an issue that he is trying to correct here in, in, in chapter 2. In fact, in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, <clears throat> three words, particular words, show up that might give us a hint. The words are envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition. So if you were to take a guess at what the issues might be, what would you, what would you conclude? Maybe that's going on. Maybe some of that potentially is going on. Um, and I think what Paul is addressing here is an issue that's happened forever in church from time to time. And it, and it shows up when, when pride raises its ugly head or when selfishness uh, drives our motives or, or possibly when we don't love each other as we should. And when that happens, these are the words you hear, gossip, slander, division, uh, grumbling, complaining, disputes. And that equals right there, church division. It could be something as gory as a split. You ever heard of a church splitting? Well, I've heard of church splitting. It could be something like that, or it could be something way more trendy in our culture today, and that would be a church transfer. If you simply are grumpy, upset, or whatever, then all you got to do is move, covertly move. No one knows, and so suddenly uh, we're okay. Um, and typically, all this problem um, is when we major on a minor thing. In other words, um, things that aren't necessarily explicit in Scripture or clear in Scripture, we call them open-ended issues, um, when we get riled about the things that God isn't clear on or God hasn't said anything about at all. And things in this category, we could make a great list, but just so we know, things like how we do what we do, programming or, or culture or, or a style. People can get upset about those things or particularly opinion about them. People can get upset about what Bible translation we use or whatever or 
or even a taking a position like, how, how is this all going to end? End times position. There are a lot of good, great, godly men who have different views on that. And uh, so some churches can split over things like that. And we call those open-handed issues. Um, but I have to tell you this. In order for us to major on the minors means you have to minor on the majors. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a preeminent thing that Paul is instructing here, and the only way we can mess it up is if we care about the wrong things in the wrong order. So, for instance, what Paul is getting at here is love and unity. But if your opinions are, or your feelings, or your take on things are higher in the priority structure than love and unity, guess what will happen? You'll feel justified in picking your corner and picking your mood. And that happens, and it's not happening to us, but it could happen, yeah? And that is the point of chapter 2. Most of your Bibles will have a heading uh, above chapter 2. If you have an ESV, it says Christ's example of humility. The NIV is uh, imitating Christ, even some of the versions, be like Christ. And the first 11 verses of chapter 2 really are a discussion on unity and humility exampled by Christ. And that's all he's trying to do and saying, this is what we are together and this is how we're supposed to be based on the image of Christ, okay? Pr pretty simple, direct delivery in, in 11 verses. And it is the, uh, it is the, the uh, kind of culmination of a, a thought that he started in, in chapter one. I don't have time to kind of study that with you, but since Jeremy taught it last week, you should have it fresh in your minds. Th this subject started back when he said, have this manner of life in you that's consistent with the gospel of Christ. Remember that in verse 27? So then he says, when I come, I see you, uh, or in absent, I can hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, unity, one mind, unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened and not uh, by anything by your opponents. So in other words, what, what Paul is suggesting is like we're together on this thing. We're of one mind, we're of one heart, we're of one spirit, we're side by side in these things together, and our lives should look like it. Live in line with the gospel. And so beyond the command that he lays down here, um, I would ask you if anything stands out. And probably if you're reading it just at a glance, that, that quick uh, staccato phrasing of one mind and, and one spirit and side by side of the gospel, that probably stands out. And beyond it being the right thing and what the gospel produces in us, Paul suggests here that, that this unity that he's championing for the church is, is a direct connection as a sign to our salvation and, and is our defense against opposition. And the church has always known opposition, hasn't it? And whether it be something like uh, even, our, even our message, if you could boil down everything that we believe, it anchors into one exclusive thought that Jesus alone saves, period. There is no other way. There is no other option. There aren't other saviors. There's a narrow road, and all who find it find life. Who don't find it end up separated from God forever. And we preach an exclusive message. Well, nothing's more offensive in our culture than saying there's only one way. And every other way is a lie. And if you say that in the, in the crowd of our culture, they're going to be offended. They're going to oppose that. Well, there's another thing, too, that, that happens in the church as far as opposition is concerned, and that is when, when people show up who choose to divide us. Again, who choose to make minor issues major issues, and then there is some splitting going on. So, starting chapter 2, Paul wants to kind of push back on those issues that would mess all of this up. 
I don't want you to reflect on it too bad. It's Father's Day. We should be all happy, okay? Um, you ever been a part of a church thing that's dividing? Ever been around it? Ever heard of one where, hey, they're not doing too good. Man, they're, they're all kind of, I hear problems. I hear rumbles. Um, what caused it? Now, I, I haven't been in your stories, but I bet I'm right. 99.9999% of the time, it's selfishness and pride. That's it. It's not like people are going, listen, that group over there, they're denying Jesus as the Lord and Savior, so we feel like in order to maintain truth, we have to leave. And You don't ever hear doctrinal splits. People don't even care about doctrine. They care about opinion. And so they split over selfishness about their opinions. If you've ever been a part of that, you know that there's nothing more painful than seeing churches war with each other. And nothing is more confusing to a watching world, to be honest with you, because even they know. They don't read their Bibles. Even they know we're supposed to love each other. So, I thank the Lord we're not in a place like that. If we are, someone should tell me, because I think it's really good around here, okay? We're not in a place like that, but I, I would tell you this. Like, wisdom and humility says that everyone in this room is a sinner. At 9.30, I sat in front of a room of sinners. 8 o'clock, that room was full of sinners. Those beautiful little children you're having, they're over in that children's room. They're all sinners. Um, the stage of life stuff, the high school ministry, do you know what I mean? They're all sinners. We're all sinners. So is there a possibility that we could, we're just like one step away from some selfish decisions that just throw this up in the air? Of course there is. So this is an exhortation. This is kind of like, um, I'm going to use a mechanical illustration. It's Father's Day. I have a right to do that. So um, this is the difference between how some of you take care of your cars and how you should. You take care of your car when it's broken. I would suggest that you do preventive maintenance and then your car won't break. This is Paul's version of preventative maintenance for the church so that we don't break on division. Do you understand? Like if we lean into his description of humility and really love lowness, then we'll never experience the pain and suffering of what it is to be divided over minor things. Does that make sense? Okay, ladies, does that make sense? All right, good. I'm glad a mechanical decision there worked. Um, Okay, um, anyway, we've all been a part of things that haven't gone well, and I understand um, that this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable, I think, because I don't think we all come naturally with humility. It isn't easy. It is not popular. Um, by the way, you, you're by nature, the, the, the antithesis to humility, the image of Christ, we by nature are about ourselves, into ourselves, concerned with opinions, thinking we're right when we're wrong. That's just kind of the nature of it. And we live in a culture, by the way, who's absolutely broken in that direction. And it seems to be kind of going everywhere, even in the church. Everybody's working on their brand, on their brand, on their brand, being known for something. And I think somehow we might even be creating our own fires, to be honest with you. So... Um, I want to tell you why this is important, why you need to listen, why you need to care, and why you need to remember. Without humility, we've got no shot at unity. And without unity, we have no testimony. Maybe I should say that another way. We will have one, but it won't be a good one. Do you understand? It matters. How we treat each other how we love each other, how we serve each other, how we choose to walk in small ways is crucial, is crucial to unity. And beyond the fact that we're not having a problem, here Paul is like bringing it up, 
We're going to have two weeks of this. Next week we get to talk about grumbling and complaining. So come to that one. That'll be a lot of hoot. That'll be fun. Um, so Paul has an intention here, and he's going towards humility that produces unity. And let me just structure the outline for us this morning. Here it is. He gives us the source of unity, the definition of unity. If we need more information, he gives us the practice of humility and the perfect picture of humility, all in 11 verses. Um, So that's our attempt. Let's do it. The first thing, the source of our unity, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then he goes on to say, complete my joy. Um, Paul mentions four things that unify us. Uh, Your version, my version, says if, and it's sort of misleading. It's not like, hey, if these things Christ does. It is because Christ does. This is since, not if, okay? So because, because, or since there is encouragement in Christ, it's the first thing he says, which is an obvious point that, that in Christ we have, we share the same Savior. We have the same stories. Every person in here, regardless of where you're from or even what you've done, we all fall short. That is our story. Tell me your testimony. You don't have to tell me details. All you got to say is I'm a sinner. All you got to say is I need a Savior. And we share every man, woman, and child, no matter what part of the world you come from, that's us. You confess Christ, you're confessing that you're a sinner, you're, you're in need. You confess the same Savior and solution. We have the same destiny, the same hope. That's the encouragement in Christ. When the, when the church blows apart and fractures, it's, it's this one thing that goes first. We take our opinions and we go to our corners and we forget that we're closer than blood relatives. We have relationship all over with family, like true family. You and I who claim Christ will be together forever. We are joined, not at the hip. We're joined to the Savior, something more strong than any other relationship in the world. Paul's just leaning on that. Why do you need to be unified? Why do you need to be together? Because you belong together. You truly are brothers and sisters. You, you can't divorce yourself from them. So he brings that up first. There is encouragement in Christ. He says this, since there's comfort from love. What is uh, easy for us to do um, is to see each other's faults. But here's what the scriptures command us to do. It's not see other people's faults, but to see other people. We look around what weird shapes people have, and we look at the heart of people. We care about people who have been commanded to love as we've been loved, right? This is the command that gets uh, really strong. Love those not like you. Love those who don't love you. Love your enemy. I mean, the call of love is huge. It's huge. And here in this passage, in Paul's mind, he's saying, listen, the reason why you want to be together, the reason why you are together is because you have the same comfort of love. You've been loved like this. Every one of us have been loved like this. And by the way, Jesus says, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love like this. And so because we've received, we give. He goes on to say, since there is participation in the Spirit. The word participation means fellowship. And our unity comes because we share the same work of the Spirit in our heart. It's the work of the Spirit that baptizes us into the body of the one and others. He does that. He opens my eyes. He opens my heart. He gives me my faithful confession. And he puts me in the context of the one another's for all time and eternity. The Holy Spirit does that. He joins man's heart to God. And the Holy Spirit joins man's heart to men. 
you and I together. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And so Paul's just telling us the way it is. You, unity. You have everything in common. You have the same spirit, the same love, and the, and the same uh, reality of encouragement in Christ. And one last thing he adds here, and that is um, that we have the same affection and sympathy since there is that word sympathy is compassion. It's the idea of mercy that we receive from Christ. And what do you do with mercy, church? When you receive mercy, what do you do with it? Do you sit back and just kind of hold on to the gift and go, I'm so glad I have mercy. I got mercy. What does the scriptures tell us? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' very first sermon, give it. Someone I heard teach a message one time, I don't think I could do it. The title's too long, but the title went like this. Those who get it, give it, and if you don't give it, you're going to get it. Do you understand? Mercy. Give it. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. And that is the point that Paul's making. We receive it and we give it. So our source of unity is pretty profound. Same Savior, same love, same fellowship to the Spirit, and we've got the same mercy that we extend to others. Now, if that is not enough for you, like you're going, okay, we should be unified, and you want more, well, he gives us more. In verse 2, he gives us the definition of the type of unity he is talking about. This is how he finishes this thought. When he says, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That, that whole like section can be boiled down to just a real simple statement, a shared mind and a shared love. And I hope you notice that even in that, that kind of partial sentence there in verse 2, it starts with this phrase, having the same mind, and he finishes with one mind. And the point that Paul is trying to make here is that we have a church, we have a singular focus. We have one singular confession. We have one unified purpose in what we're about. We are about the gospel, the good news that Jesus rescues people from their sin. That is the singular focus of the church. That's why we have banners out on the, on the commons. All of life is all for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus saves all who come. That's why we celebrate Christ. That's why every song that we sing is about this wonderful story that sinners can be redeemed. We have one mind about the gospel, and it's Jesus saves. And we say it this way, by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone. That's how it happens. And we're one mind about that. Um, and I have to say the, op the negative side of this. When we talk about oneness, or Paul talks about oneness here, he isn't talking about the things we share in our experiences. And he's not talking about our perspectives or our opportunities or our culture or what we're familiar with. He has nothing of that in mind. We're one-minded about the gospel. If you recall in your past, even in the stories that you've heard, when you've seen or witnessed division in a church, Every single time, it's about the division over the things that are about culture and about experiences and perspectives and opinions. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Now, I'm not all-knowing, so maybe somewhere there's an exception to that. I have not heard of it. I heard a story even this week, and this, is, this goes back years and years. An old, old Baptist pastor tells the story of a church that divided, in fact, the courts. They went to the courts to try to decide who gets the property. That's how divided they were. And they hired a, an outside um, company 
It represents churches to leave the legal out of it, to try to get to the bottom of who, what's the problem. And so they determined that this one church should get all the proceeds, get all the money, get all the property. And then one investigator went so far as to find out why they were splitting. Do you know what it was? A leader in the church got served a smaller portion of food at the fellowship. Now, you might laugh at stuff like that. It's laughable. It's a joke. How is it not obvious? And all I'm, I use that only because I, I, hope, I don't think that's ever happened to you. But whatever was the source of that ridiculousness does reside in all of us. Some sense of your worth or some sense of you deserving, some sense of others should give me respect or esteem, and it's possible, right? It's possible. So there's the reality that we share this one common truth, not a common experience. The beauty of the church, beyond the fact that Jesus is the only thing we see, is that the church is seen in its diversity with a singular confession. Every color, tribe, tongue, opinion, experience, and background can all line up under one Savior. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to see the same things. But we're one because of one Savior. Does that make sense? That's Paul's point here. There is this unifying aspect, the one gospel. Okay, we've seen what makes us unified. That's verse 1. We've now looked at what, un- what we're unified about. That's verse 2. Verse 3 and 4 tells us this wonderful thing called humility. It introduces the subject of humility into the church as the way for us to maintain unity. Let's just call it the practice of humility. Here's how it goes, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, the kind of unity that Paul is championing for the church only grows in humility. We can't just be kind of honorable and make a list and go, oh, let's try to fight for this. If there is no humility, there will never be unity. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's why Paul links them together here. They belong together. So when I read those two verses, I find this interesting. What did you hear? What stood out to you? Was it the work or was it the calling? Because there's some negative statements that Paul makes in this passage that you would look at and go, I I need to do that, I need to do that. He says, don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Don't be into your own interests and looking out for yourself. And if that's all you heard, then my suggestion is you're going to have a really hard time with humility. Because what what he pushes to the forefront is the calling to being humble. That has to come at the top of the list. Yes, don't, don't be selfish, don't be conceited, don't look out for yourself. But if all of that is trying to happen without a heart that loves to be small, you tell me how it's going to turn out. Not so good. It just won't turn out so good. So I understand if it was challenging for you not to see the, the calling because the word humility, the idea of humility has never been that popular. I mean, you can't go in our culture and go, man, this is a culture that loves to be small. Man, we love to serve. That isn't the way it is. It's not the way it was for Paul. When Paul wrote this, the culture, the, the kind of the word, even the word humility was a derogatory term. It, it sort of meant um, weakness or shame. You didn't want to use it. It was a dirty word to them. And Paul 
brings the dirty word out and he puts it at the top of the pile and says, that's what we're going for. What the world would consider shameful and weak, we're putting it up as the picture of our Savior. That's what he's telling us. The word humility means lowliness. And it really was considered a bad word in that day. And obviously, we live in a culture where it isn't considered a bad word anymore. Uh, Being selfish, looking out for number one, trying to impress, is the way it is. It is the way that we, uh, in fact, it's considered somewhat of a virtue. How do you be popular? Influencers influence, not with humility. Leaders lead, not with humility. And I can get it. You can look at this and go, wait a minute. If I choose to be small like that, really, truly, I'll get run over. That's what will happen. People take advantage of me and they'll mistreat me and I can't promise you that won't happen. That might happen. But I suppose, um, even though that's true, I, I would tell you that even thinking about what could happen is just more evidence that you haven't even begun to process the role of humility in your life. If what, if what just the idea of humility does is let you assess yourself and go, I don't want to get run over. And what happens in in a room like this, there's somebody sitting next to somebody in here who's been run over. And you know, well, if I I choose to be small, if I choose to take the back seat, if I choose not to open my mouth, if I choose to serve, if I choose, that person right there, he'll dominate. She'll dominate. And you have a thousand reasons. And I'm just going to suggest to you, if what you do right away is put up the force field of why you'll get hurt, then you'll never get to humility. Because getting to humility really means you might get hurt. It truly means that's the position that we put ourselves in. Humility actually begins when we spend more time thinking about our personal inadequacies than our injustices. When we um, start assessing our hearts versus expressing our hearts, then we're closer to humility. Um, You know, this being able to spot other people's failures is kind of like a national pastime. You know, we can do it. It's a sport. From a mile away, that guy, that girl, I could label them right away. But I really think there's an exercise we need, like a consistent exercise, to look in our own mirror and get done with a very good exhaustive list and then ask yourself the question, do I have any right to lift my head? Um, I read this week a, a guy posting questions regarding the subject. I thought I would read them to you and see if the Spirit does to you what he did to me. The questions you might consider, do you, do you argue too much? Are you quick to criticize? Do you talk about yourself a lot? Do you want recognition? Do you worry about what other people think of you? Can you, do you say I'm wrong, ever? Does it bother you when someone gets praised for something you could do better? Do you envy others? Are you right now thinking, someone's hearing these words about selfishness and conceit and these other people have you in mind? That's the picture right there. I don't know. I, I, I would just think that if we truly spent time knowing and being honest about our deficiencies and our limitations and our tendencies, 
it would be way harder to pull out the judgments, wouldn't it? Shouldn't it? I think so. I want you to know this, that the calling that Paul puts on us for humility requires a love for the low position. If all you hear is instructions, like, hey, you should be stronger, but you don't want to, you don't want to work out, well, you know what's going to happen. You're never going to be stronger. You have to love obscurity. You have to love giving it away and never being singled out for giving it away. You've got to love the low position. You have to fight, like really fight for obscurity because nothing in your flesh wants to be obscure. Nothing wants to be small. Nothing wants to be run over. So it is a daily fight to say, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. It's who I am. It's who I am. What are you? I'm a servant. Who are you? I'm a servant. And you've got to love the low position. Fighting for obscurity isn't just, by the way, for folks who have no other option. People who have nothing, who can do nothing, they should be humble. What do they have to offer? And if they come to you, you say, hey, listen, you need to just get, get close to who you are, man. You're never going to matter. You're never going to change the world. You're just, you're a servant, so be humble. That's not what Paul's instruction to. Let, let me just tell you what I think it fits with. All right? Real humility is seen when people who in the world's eye are considered something special, but they live with God's eye that they are sinners saved by grace. Somebody in here needs to hear this. You've got more money than everybody else. You've got more influence than everybody else. You've got more position than everybody else. You've got more capacity than everybody else. You can do more than everybody else. And you're going to look at this list and go, somebody else should be obscure. Somebody else should be small. I got things to do. I'm telling you, Paul's thrust on this is to come after the heart that thinks you're the exclusion to the rule. I think we have to see ourselves to the eye of how God sees us without a Savior, and that's how we get low, and that's how we love the low position. Okay, you need more? One more. Um, verses 5 through 11 is Paul adding to us the most beautiful picture of humility ever. So if, if humility so far has been difficult, somewhat of a dirty word, almost impossible, now let's put it on the Savior and you tell me what you think. This is what he says, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some have called this section, that short little section, the greatest, most poetic section Paul ever wrote. And I'm inclined to believe it. Um, to be honest with you, this section on the incarnation deserves its own, ser like, own series. There's so much in it, um, but we're not going to do it today. I simply want to use it for the reason Paul put it here. He's putting the humility of Christ on a pedestal to point all of the church 
to his argument. This is why you choose small. This is who we choose to be like. And that's all he says, verse 5, be like Jesus. If anyone ever had the right to put himself in a position to serve himself, clearly the creator, sustainer of the world, the son of God had the right. Make it about me. I want you to notice two phrases here, and you'll get kind of the thrust of Paul's teaching. In verses 6 and 7, he uses two, two kind of phrases, form of God, form of a servant. We only have one English word for form, and it's what we use. In the original language, there's two uses of that word. Uh, the form of God was directly connected to the essential things that never change. Form of God, the things he is, always was, be, and will never change. Jesus Fully God. And then he says, who took on the form of a servant. And that is a different word, and it just means the outward things change from time to time. So as an example, um, everyone in here is of the unmovable essence of human form. You're, you're human, but I could see in your life, if I picked up your yearbook, I could see your form as a child, I could see your form as a teenager, and I could see your form as an adult. You see, you are human, but you have different different forms as you grow as a human. Jesus is God who put on the form of a servant. You understand his point? He's not confusing. He's not saying that Jesus set aside his godhood to become a servant. He said the opposite. In fact, I, I, I saw this in Hebrews. I thought of this. The writer of Hebrews says that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus isn't just the reflection of God. He radiates God. He is the source of God's glory. And that is exactly Paul's point here. Form of God, fully God, reading the pression of God throughout the universe is what he is. This all-transcendent, all-knowing, eternal, all-powerful God does what? Verse 7 tells us. He reveals himself in the form of a slave. This is what one person said. Christ didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a servant. He manifested the form of God in the shape of a slave. Totally different, isn't it? Like Jesus didn't become somebody different. He revealed in his servanthood exactly who God is to us. God is a servant God. So if you have a problem with being low in humility, you have a problem with God. If you don't like the image of being run over, then you don't have, you don't have in your mind's eye who God is. Fully God manifested in slave form is our Savior. And Paul puts it up on the pedestal and say, that's what we're talking about. Unity, that's where you get it from. That kind of humility. Just be like Christ in that way. So, I think if Paul were here, if I gave him time in the pulpit, not certain I would, but if I did, um, he would ask one question. What's your problem with Humility. What is it? I mean, anybody got any questions? I mean, here's the Savior of the world. He hung the stars in place. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows the beginning and the middle and the end. He's holding it all together. He's planning it all, and it'll come to fruition through his power. And he's choosing small. What's your problem with humility? Why isn't it beautiful to you? Why isn't it something you aspire to? I think that's Paul's point. And he's looking, I think, through a lens of a potential division. Like, there could be problems. There's jealousy and envy and selfish ambition. Whenever you get that in a church, uh-oh, I hope it doesn't blow up. So Paul lays out for us this idea of how we belong to each other, 
And then he says, humility. That's where unity comes from. Everyone being small. Interesting in verse 7, I got to mention this. I know we're out of time. I'm sorry, but verse 7, he says this. But Christ emptied himself by taking. How does that happen? It doesn't happen for you and me. Nobody empties something by taking something. But Jesus did. He emptied himself of access to all the ramifications of his deity, and he took. Humility, in other words, is an action. You could be sitting here today listening to me going, you know, Tim, listen, good thoughts. I'm going to start thinking about those thoughts. And I should probably consider what you're saying and probably need to make some adjustments to how I feel about humility and service. I'm telling you, you're missing the point. This kind of humility is action. It's not a feeling. Jesus emptied by taking. If we're going to get the humility of Christ, we have to actually walk in humility and live a life of humility. And I will just say this, and I know it might sound blunt, but I have to say it in light of our culture. The kind of arrogance and self-promotion and lack of choosing to be obscure that is so cool isn't. It's not cool. It is not good leadership. It is not understandable, and it's not just the way things are. I want you to hear this. This kind of life that is in our world is Christless. It has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. I'm not saying you're not a believer if you're struggling. I'm suggesting it's not at all like your Savior. It's Christless. So that's Paul's point. I know it's not easy, but I know this. This kind of humility has to be beautiful us to us or we've got no shot at it. You have to look at it and go, man, that's, that's glorious. I can't wait to serve somebody to such a point they don't notice me or I get used up and they don't thank me. I want to be humble like that. In, in us, the church, who take on the shape of Jesus, I think it's the guarantee we will never be broken by disunity because we're out serving one another. Do you understand? Well, if you don't understand, next week we're going to talk about grumbling and complaining, so I'll see you <laughs> next Sunday. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us, help us get this. This is clearly preventative maintenance as far as I can tell for us. Help us love the shape of Christ. Help us love the obscure places and the service and the humility that goes along with it. Help us not think about it. Help us live it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.